Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 36 tonight. And while you are turning, I want to remind you that the Apostle John gave us the purpose for his gospel. In chapter 20, verse 31, he told us that the things that he wrote in his gospel, he wrote so that we would believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, we have life through his name. Well, as we continue with the second part of John chapter 3, last time, in the first half, Jesus had a conversation with Nicodemus, and Jesus basically blew up Nicodemus' worldview by insisting that anyone who wanted to enter the kingdom of God must be born again, born of the Spirit. Nicodemus would not accept what Jesus said or believe him. So Jesus left Nicodemus with these words in John 3, verses 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Whether Nicodemus accepts it or not, he needs a Savior. He is as desperate as the Israelites were in Numbers 21, When snakes had come into the camp and were biting people, and whoever got bitten died, and they cried out to Moses, and and God provided a way that if they would look to the snake that was mounted on a pole, then they would be healed. They would live. And Nicodemus is just as desperate as that snake being lifted up in the wilderness. He must look to Jesus and believe in him if he wants to have eternal life. There is no other way. Well, as we look at this second half of John chapter 3, our attention turns to more of the ministry of John the Baptist, and that's where we'll pick up in verse 22. After this, that is after Jesus had that conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, where he spent time with them and baptized. John also was baptizing in Anan near Salim, because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. As as we are reintroduced here to John the Baptist, we we learn something in these few verses that we will not learn in any of the other Gospels. And that is that John and Jesus had an overlapping ministry of baptism. If, If you were just to pick up the Gospel of Mark, for example, or one of the other Gospels, what you would find in that Gospel is that Jesus was baptized by John. The Spirit came down upon Jesus. Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit and tempted. He did not sin. He said no to Satan. And at that point, John is arrested, and Jesus begins his earthly ministry. But here, the Apostle John wants us to understand that this is something that's happening before John is thrown into prison. That Jesus had a ministry of baptism... And John had a ministry of baptism. In fact, they're not too far from each other. Now, we will find out in chapter 4, which we're not getting to tonight, that Jesus himself was not actually baptizing. His disciples were. But for the purposes of our discussion tonight, I'm probably going to make it sound like Jesus was baptizing. Okay, so just if you can kind of keep that in the back of your mind, that it's his disciples. But they have this ministry going on at the same time, And that leads to a situation in verses 25 and 26. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, 
Rabbi, we have this problem about purification. We need you to straighten it out for us. Well, that's, actually, that's not actually what it says. It's, they had this, this dispute. We don't know what it's about. There's a dispute about purification, and by the time they get to John to get it straightened out, they're, they're already thinking about something else, and something else is on the forefront of their mind. that It's got to be settled first. So we'll, we'll focus here in verse 26 on what they came to John about. So they came to John, and they told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is flocking to him. Now, the language here is very similar to what you find in Mark 4, or not Mark 4, but in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, where it describes John's ministry that everyone was coming out to him. Everyone was coming to John. And now it looks like that attention is being shifted a little bit, and there's actually more people coming to see Jesus than coming to see John. Although John clearly has some people coming to him because he's still baptizing. So this, this is the, the, the issue that they come to John with. And look at John's response in verse 27. Verse 27, John responded, No one can receive a single thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. So John... He just has this amazing response in verse 27 that he understands that everything that he has has been given to him by God. And he's content with that. He has no rights or claims of something to hold on to as if his fame or the, these people being drawn to him was something that he deserved or he needed to hold on to. He understands that everything he has was given to him. Everything Jesus has was given to him. He has a certain role. John has a certain role. John's role is to be the one who goes ahead of him. And, and the language here kind of reminds me of 1 Corinthians 4, 7, where Paul, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, What makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? You see, we, ha- we have nothing on our own. Everything that we have was given to us by God. Our very life, our very resources, our talents, everything that we have was given by God. So John's not the least bothered that Jesus is getting more attention. He understands he has a role. He's content with what he's been given by God. And in fact, he has already told all of them, I am not the Messiah. I'm just telling you about the one who's coming after me. Now, it's interesting that John the Baptist at this point does know who the Messiah is. If you remember, uh, back in chapter 1, where, where John had, had to answer to the religious leaders about, who are you? And he assured them, no, I'm not the Messiah. He, he had pointed out Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he, he lets us know that I didn't know who the Messiah was, But I came baptizing so that he would be revealed. That's in verse 31. And then in verse 33, he repeats it. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that he is the Son of God. He saw the Spirit descend on Jesus and remain on him. He knows Jesus is marked as the Messiah. And so he calls him the Son of God. 
Verse 36, the next day when Jesus comes by, John points out, hey, look, the Lamb of God and two of his disciples start following Jesus instead of following him. One of those is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So as we go back to John chapter 3, John has a response. John the Baptist has a response of humility here in understanding that everything he has had was given to him by God, and he knows what his role is, and that is to go ahead of the one who's coming after him, to prepare the way for the Lord. And he gives an analogy of a wedding in verse 29. He says, He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him greatly rejoices at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. So in a wedding, the groom is the one who gets the bride. But the friend of the groom can still rejoice to be there and to see his friend's joy, to see his friend receive his bride. And in this verse, Jesus is the groom. And John the Baptist is the friend who is now seeing Jesus as he is now getting attention. He knows Jesus is the one who's going to come after him. So ultimately, he needs to point people to Jesus. And so if people are actually going to Jesus, that's a good thing. His joy is complete. In verse 30, we have what I believe are the last words of John the Baptist recorded in the gospel here, where he he sums it up by saying, He must increase, but I must decrease. So John the Baptist's life is not about himself. It's about exalting Christ. Verses 31 through 36, I believe we we have now ended the conversation with John the Baptist. And we are now getting the words of the Apostle John as he writes a few thoughts about this. And so we get in verse 31 what I believe are John the Apostle's words. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. And I think the Apostle John is just highlighting here the vast difference, the chasm between Jesus and John the Baptist. Jesus is from above. He's above all. He's preeminent. John is from the earth. He's earthly. And so I think, I think is in, in line with John the Baptist's statement that I need to decrease and Jesus needs to increase, it's because Jesus is far greater than John. John the Baptist has already told us, I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie his shoe. So Jesus is far greater. He is from above. Verse 32. He testifies to what he has seen. This is Jesus Jesus, coming from above, testifies to what he has seen and heard, yet no one accepts his testimony. And we saw that already in John chapter 3, verse 11, where Jesus tells Nicodemus, I assure you, we speak what we know. We testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. You see, Jesus has come from above. He's telling about things that he's seen and heard and lived. He knows exactly what he's talking about. It's true and accurate. And yet we have this recording that no one accepts his testimony. Now the very next verse, we'll see that there are exceptions to that. So there are exceptions to the no one accepts his testimony. But this is just the general thought that as Jesus comes into the world, he is largely rejected. 
And we saw that in the prologue. If you go back to John chapter 1, Jesus, the Word, who is God, who is eternal, who is the creator of all things, came into the world that he created, verse 10, and the world did not recognize him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So we see this consistent message that Jesus, the light, coming into the world, and yet he is rejected. But, verse 33, some will accept. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. Now I want to focus on the first part there about the one who has accepted his testimony. Some will accept. Nicodemus did not, at least not at this point. But if we go back to the prologue in John chapter 1, and I'm sorry to keep flipping back and forth, but it's only a couple pages. In verse 12, when Jesus came to his own and they didn't receive him, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. They became, they were born of God. So some will receive him. Some will be born again. Some will believe and have eternal life. So as we keep going in in verse 33 now, um, verses 33 through 35 are a little bit confusing. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to explain it in our short time to your satisfaction. But I'm going to give you at least what I think it it means. And um, hopefully you can follow along and, and it makes some sense here. So in verse 33, we see that the one who has accepted his testimony, that's Jesus' testimony, has affirmed that God is true. For God sent him, God sent Jesus, and he, meaning Jesus, speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. So I think what, what the Apostle John is trying to do here, as he has held a very high Christology all throughout the gospel, beginning in the prologue, is I think he is trying to point to the fact of of essentially this equalness between the Son and the Father, this equalness between Jesus and God. So Jesus has come from above. He's not earthly. He's come from above, the same place where the Father resides. And so verse 33, the one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. I think what it's saying here is if you believe what Jesus is saying is true, then you believe God's words are true. You know why? Because Jesus is saying God's words. Verse 34, he speaks God's words. So to reject Jesus and his words is to reject God's words. Verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. We're, we're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Actually, I want to go back to that last phrase in verse 34. So Jesus speaks God's words, and then we have this confusing or at least unclear phrase, since he gives the Spirit without measure. Who is the one giving the Spirit here without measure? Is it God the Father? Is it Jesus? It's not really clear in the verse. We do know from John that Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. But I don't think contextually that's what fits here. I think in the context that what is happening here is God in some way is giving the Spirit 
to Jesus without measure, without limits. All right, and, and as, as, as um, simply as I can try to explain this, this, you have this same language in verse 34 and in verse 35 of giving to the Son. At least that's how I'm going to take it, that it's the same. That God gives the Spirit without measure. And in verse 35, you have the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Now, you know, the question might be, well, why does, why does the Son need the Spirit? Well, I'm not going to try to answer that one tonight because we don't have a lot of time. But just remember that at, John, at Jesus' baptism... The Spirit did, in fact, descend upon Jesus and remain on him, at which point the Spirit led him into the wilderness. Okay? So there is something significant about God giving the Spirit to his Son in this capacity. Now, as far as this idea that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands, I, I want to try to emphasize this idea that, that there's... There's this equality between the Father and the Son, so that the things that are the Son's are the Father's, or maybe I should say it the other way, the things that are the Father's are the Son's. The things that the Father says, the Son says. The things that the Father does, the Son does. So let's turn over to chapter 5, and and we get a glimpse of this. Now, I, I hope I'm not making too big a leap here, but I'm just trying to figure out what does it mean that the Father has given the Son all things? So let's look at John chapter 5, verse 19. For what, this is the end of, of 19. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does these things in the same way. So the Son does the same things as the Father in the same way. Verse 20. The Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing. All right, that's pretty significant. The Son knows everything the Father is doing. That's, that's a pretty big chasm here between the rest of us, right? All right? Verse 21. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to anyone he wants to. The Father has power and authority over death and life. And the Son has, a, has the same authority and power to give life to anyone he wants to. Verse 22. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So the Father has the authority to judge all people. He's given the Son the authority, the right to judge all people. You see how, how you get kind of this equality idea that what the Father does, the Son does. What the Father says, the Son says. The the authority and power that the Father has, the Son has. And in fact, he goes so far to say at the end of verse 23, anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You cannot honor the Father if you do not honor the Son. And so I think that's a little bit maybe, as we go back to John chapter 3, what it's talking about when it talks about if if you're going to affirm that Um, God's words are true, then you've got to believe that Jesus' words are true. Jesus is speaking God's words. Um, One more thought as I I try to um, maybe just inform us a little bit on this idea here of of this equality, of this idea of of, um, the Father giving the Son the Spirit without measure, and this, this gap between the one from above and the one from the earth. 
Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. People like John the Baptist. Verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact expression of his nature. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. So as I end this part in verses 33 through 35, I may not be able to explain every single bit of it to you in a way that is crystal clear. But I think the idea of what John is trying to do here is he's trying to show how exalted Jesus is as being from above. And his equality with the Father. Finally, he ends this section in verse 36 with the climax of chapter 3. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. He's been pointing to this all along. Verse 15, verse 16, verse 18. But the only way to eternal life is through the Son. And, and it's available to anyone who believes. But the opposite is true too. Anyone who does not believe, they will not have life. The wrath of God remains on them. So as we close out this part in John 3... The Apostle John is making it clear, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that there is no other way to have eternal life other than through faith in Jesus Christ. Whether you are a leading Jewish teacher and a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, or a follower of John the Baptist, you must believe in Jesus or you will remain under the wrath of God. And the gift, of God, the gift of eternal life is available to everyone who will believe, including an immoral Samaritan woman that we'll learn about in chapter 4. So as we close, I'd like you to consider five things tonight. Number one, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ and received the gift of eternal life? There is no other way to the Father but through him. Number two, we have a message that is good for everyone, from our neighborhoods to the nations. We must be willing to share that message that Jesus saves, and there is no way to be made right with God apart from him. Three, in considering John the Baptist, have you learned to be content with whatever God gives you in life, whether much or little? Number four, is your life marked by humility, as we see in John the Baptist? Is your life about your fame and glory, or is your life all about exalting and promoting Jesus Christ? And finally, number five, let us remember the high cost for the gift of life that we enjoy. Jesus was lifted up on a cross, bearing the sin of the world on his body, enduring the wrath of God for our sin. So we remember him tonight 
as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for Jesus who has the words of life, a life that is available to anyone who will believe. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here tonight who does not, who has not put their faith in Jesus Christ to be their Savior, that they would do so tonight. And Father, I pray for those of us who have trusted Christ, those of us who are following Christ, would you continue to change us, to make us more Christ-like, especially as it comes to humility. Lord, especially as it comes to the idea of living for someone greater than ourselves, and that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, everything that we have, we owe to you. Lord, help us to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.